0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So 15 years ago, actually, when the school was created, the Rady School, we finished 15 years, there was a choice to make in terms of a brand for a school. All the community knew is that they wanted a great school of business. They wanted one that could stand up with any in the world. And uh, they wanted us to do this with just community support, not, not with support elsewhere. And uh, So the path that we chose in 2003 was to focus on a topic that was innovation that focused on science and technology, not entrepreneurship, by the way. It was innovation and focusing on folks that have a strong science technology background and that ultimately the school would be judged not by folks who went to Goldman Sachs, but they would be judged by the individuals who graduated and ultimately created sustaining companies that made a difference, not only locally, but they made a difference in the world. And that ultimately will be how the school is judged in the the long term. That's the brand recognition that we chose not to be Wharton or Harvard, but to be a school that's focused on this innovation topic. So with this... Uh, you'll, you'll hear more about this type of, of focus and, and success as, uh, as the evening goes on. Our moderator is Larry Gulko, who is a brand architect, strategist, entrepreneur, and media personality. And uh, in particular, he's, very, he's a very, very proud alum of Babson College in both undergraduate and MBA programs, and Babson is certainly the recognized school in entrepreneurship. They defined entrepreneurship 30 and 40 years ago. Larry will give a presentation on brand and, and disruptive brand building, and then will moderate a discussion with our alumni. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Larry Gulko. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. It's great to be here and I want to thank
1: Sean and um, his team for inviting me tonight. And what I want to do is give you a presentation tonight on my take on what it takes to really to build a best-selling brand. What I want you to do is basically come along with me in my own journey on building brands because what I'm gonna talk about it has to do with conceptually. It has nothing to do with your budget. It doesn't matter if you have a, you have a dollar million, $100 million, I've worked with companies in the past, I've seen companies blow $30 million, so it's not about money, it's about conceptually how you focus and understand your brand, so if you take away tonight three to five things that are really key that you can implement tomorrow in your companies, then we've done really good. So I'd like to start off and just kind of set the stage for the landscape and show you what I feel right now is kind of like what's permeating the world and what's happening out there that really is pretty... um, it's, um, it's just not jiving with what brand building is all about. I'd like to just tell you a few things. First of all, successful brands are not the result of great marketing campaigns, great marketing stories. Successful brands are the result of building great business stories. If you build a great business story, a lot of your brand takes care of itself. Second thing is that too many brands today are really copying other brands. They're in what I call the sea of sameness. They're stuck in the muck. They're not doing anything that's really differentiated. They're not doing anything that's unique. They're not doing anything that really is authentic and relevant. They're really following. They're, they're, they're looking at a following C. You know, it's interesting, like leading brands don't really react to following brands. For example, like if you look at McDonald's, you never see McDonald's react to Burger King, okay? The more Burger King nibbles away at McDonald's, what does it do? It just shows that McDonald's is the leading brand. Many brands today need to find a focus. There are so many companies out there today that are losing, I mean, in Boston, there's a place called Gino's just went bankrupt yesterday. What For 40 years, they were, they were a great pizza company. Then they went pizza and a whole lot more. You can't do a whole lot more because you divide the power of your brand and you lose your focus. And unfortunately, a lot of companies, they do silly things for the next quarter to earn more revenue and EBITDA and so forth, but they fracture their future of, of staying you know, on track on the knitting of what they're really famous for. And it might sound really simple saying, how does someone do that? They do that. I'll just give an example It's public information, but you know, how many have heard of Talbot's Clothing? Talbot's has 534 stores. Talbot's came this close to going bankrupt about well, four years ago. A friend of mine, well, she's a friend of mine now, she took over Talbot's. And basically, Talbot's was known as a women's brand, right? But the manager the team, the board of directors said, hey, everyone knows our brand name. Let's lose our focus. Let's call it Talbots for women. We'll have Talbots for men. We'll have Talbots for children. I mean, like, what's next? Talbots for pets? You know what I'm saying? But but you, you sit here and you laugh and say, I mean, how can they do this? Like, their focus is their women's brand. Like Brooks Brothers is a men's brand. Brooks Brothers try to do Brooks Brothers for women, and they failed. But we can sit here and say, like, how does this stuff happen? Well, it happens and it's sad, all right? So the thing now today, you don't see any tablets for men, you don't see tablets for children, it's tablets for women, period. So the word focus is so important because people do lose their focus for a variety of reasons, and a lot of silly stuff happens in the world of business. Next is that not enough brands today amaze and delight their clientele or customers. We expect good and average. Like later on, if you go to a restaurant tonight, what do we expect? Mediocre service. And when we get blown away by amazing service, the experience is much more enjoyable. It shows our gratuity, but we don't expect that. So, you know, it's all about the experience I'll talk about later on. Um, so we, we expect to have medioc- mediocrity, and we get really famous if we deliver remarkable. Another thing, a lot of companies and of brands are, are not named brands. They're brand names. They are brand names, they're Father in Delaware, LLC, but they're not name brands. There's a huge distinction between what a name brand is and a brand name. we will talk about that. And lastly, brands today, many of them fail to establish what I call an emotional connection. They're so stuck on the bits and bobs, the rational stuff. I'll give you an example. About five years ago, I was consulting with a company called Cybex, another fitness company. And when I first went to the first week, all the sales team was telling us the reason people love our, our treadmills we have more amps and more voltage and more our revolutions. I'm saying, hold it. People aren't buying treadmills and equipment for revolutions. What are you going to sell? We do 900 revolutions. They do 700 revolutions. They're selling revolutions. You're selling a brand voice. You're selling a brand story. So we have to get off the rational stuff and really focus more on the emotional connection that really drives brand loyalty and revenue to a new plateau of success. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I really believe, in 1850, really created the concept of brand marketing. Ralph said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there's no path and leave a trail. And isn't that so true? Otherwise, as like I mentioned earlier, if you're not going to leave a trail, you're just going to be a following brand. When, and when everyone goes to the left, you're not going to go to the left. You have to go to the right. Otherwise, you're going to make a huge mistake. And basically, you're going to be, what well, I call, it, sea of sameness. So the first thing you want to do is, I mentioned, you've got to focus your brand you got to specialize and be a go-to brand. In today's day and age, whenever ever before, specialists win, generalists lose. And if I had to recommend to you to be one brand or follow what one brand is doing, that brand to me is the Q-tip. you got to become the Q-tip, all right? Henry Gersten saw his wife putting some cotton on a toothpick and cleaning their baby's ears out in 1920. And he said, you know something? This is going to cause a a puncture. This is going to really cause something bad to our baby's ear. And he said, aha, I'm gonna take uh, cotton and put it on a piece of uh, wood, whatever, and and make it a cotton swab. Well, 100 years later, it's been bought by, I think it was uh, Lever Brothers and a few other companies. But the the reason I'm bringing up Q-Tip is because Q-Tip is a singular product, right? Known for one thing. They don't sell shampoo. They don't sell conditioner. They don't sell pizza right? They don't sell anything else. They know who they are. And this, the valuation and the singularity is huge. q chip is even more of a, you'll say, generic verb, or I mean, a, a noun, than like Kleenex. Years ago, we used to say, get me a Kleenex, right? Kleenex was synonymous with paper tissue. Then we said, get me a copy. And we said, get us a Xerox copy. But how many people today have guests come into your house, and people say to you, after take a shower, where are the cotton swabs? It doesn't happen, does it? You say, where's the Q-tips? But I mean, like, this product or this singularity is so key to building a best-selling brand. And you're going to see later on with my um, panel discussion with our two entrepreneurs how they're sticking to the knitting and they're hitting home runs big time because they know who they are and they're singular and they're not generalists, they're specialists. So in doing that, I want to just do a little little fun here, a little interaction with you. Department stores were generalists, and I'm just having Macy's there for now, but department stores are generalists, and they're failing miserably. Sears, Macy's, JCPenney, they're all going out of business. Why? Because they're not specialists. And many people feel they failed because they lost track of fashion. But what they did was, I mean, I don't know about you here, but how many times on Wednesday afternoon you get in the mail, Macy's, the biggest one-day sale since Columbus discovered the world. Every Wednesday, it's the biggest and the best sale you've ever seen in your entire life. And if you don't come Wednesday, you're missing the bat. That's it. You're going to lose out Thursday, back to list price. Sure, so I want to show you, so what happened was, go back in time, so the, this department store is, is a generalist, and at one point in time, there was a little book department there, and what happened was, what they did wrong was trivial to what the competition did right. Out of each generalist store, became big, global, leading brands that today are killing it. So let's go back now to the store, we used to go a little, maybe in the first floor, of Macy's, in the corner, they sold books, what great brand was born out of the book department of Macy's? That's a, that's a, that's a global brand today. Barnes and Nobles. Now, now, let's go to the bedding department. There were three or four pillows, maybe some sheets. What, what great brand was born out of the bedding department? You got it. Women, you want to go get some makeup? You used to go the, to the Macy's, you to see L'Oreal, you see Clinique, a few things here and there, whatever. What brand is now killing it in, in makeup? You got it. Housewears, Crate and Barrel. You want lingerie? No more. Go to the Macy's or Bloomingdale's, that little department back in the next to the men's and ladies room. Where do we go? Where do the ladies go for lingerie? Consumer electronics. The TVs. Best buy is is the, the chain, the brand of consumer electronics, whether you love them or not. Sporting goods is dicks, and lastly, the kitchen the little kitchen department with the blenders and little fry pans. And then salt and pepper shakers, which brands are today? You're right, Williams-Sonoma. So what I'm saying is that, you know, you have to really understand what's happening as far as being a specialist versus being a generalist. Tip number two I have for you is you have to be first. You have to take a deep dive, and you have to say to yourself, you know, what are you really selling? The concept of first is so important, okay? Being number one in the mind, not being number one as an inventor, but in the mind is the key. You know, IBM did not create the first computer, but they positioned themselves as the number one computer. Motorola created the first cell phone, right? Where are they today? Where's Nokia? They're gone. The concept first is so powerful. What is the tallest mountain in the world? Mount Everest. Everest. What's the second tallest mountain in the world? Kilimanjaro. K2? What is it? Do you, do you know why we don't know? Because we don't care. <laughs> we don't care. Now, an auto rental companies, Hertz, number one, right? Avis, for 67 years, we try harder. We're number two. Who's number three? Is it National Budget, Alamo, four or five? Who are they, right? Because we don't care. Because Hertz is in our mind, we're number one. But are there any folks here who are majoring in accounting, finance? Has any of you studied on paper who number one really is? It's enterprise. But it doesn't matter in marketing and brand marketing and consumerism because in our mind, Hertz is our go-to brand for car rentals, not enterprise, but on paper it's enterprise. Again, it's the first in the mind. Purell did not create disinfectant, but they do. They package it differently, and so they're the, they're the number one brand who, if you want to call it on-the-go, disinfectant, and on and on and on. So you don't have to be the inventor of the product, but you have to be the first in the mind position of the consumer. And if I said to you right now, I'm going to say, okay, close your eyes for a second, right? Because this concept of first is so powerful. Close your eyes, and I want you to think back. Who was the first person you might have kissed on their cheek or whatever? Maybe when you were 12, 14 years old, whatever it might be. Think back of him or her name, where it was. Can you you recall it? Okay, you're all nodding. Now, if I ask you, who was number two? <laughs> can you remember? Seriously, I can. I remember. I was 12 years old. This girl's name was Marlene. I kissed on her, her cheek um, on her deck. Uh, no, 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 no. Those days we call them porches, right? Now we're dating. I'm dating myself, right? Kissed on her cheek. Her parents drove in the driveway. I bolted to the forest, skid is scared as ever, right? and I was livid, okay, but I really myself also, I, cannot, I have no idea who the second person was. I have no idea, I'm clueless. So I, I just show that as an illustration because the first the mind wins. Now, as far as being the go-to brand, top of mind, right? I mentioned a minute, a minute ago, take a deep dive. What are you really selling? I mean, really selling. Not what are you making, what are you really selling? I want to do something here that's a lot of fun that's gonna illustrate uh, the, the thought concept of what are you really selling. The first one is, what is what is Harley Davidson really emotionally selling? Who said freedom? Did you see my notes? (laughs) Harley's in the freedom business. They make motorcycles, but they're selling freedom. How many of you have motorcycles? Okay, okay. I'm I'm out of cycles, but really, when you're on the open road, aren't you in a bubble that freedom, that sense of exhilaration? Isn't isn't that why you buy a motorcycle? is it? Absolutely. Did you come here on a bike? Absolutely. So, so now you, you had a great favorite feeling. Now you're here for some education and content. Okay. You're going to kind of mellow out and then go back on your bike and rev it up. Right. 100%. So I was with the CEO of Howie Davidson and he said, Larry, you're spot on. We're not in the, we make motorcycles. We're in the freedom business. And again, you get to take a deep dive and you get to a real, real deep dive emotionally, what business are you really in? Like Boston Children's Hospital. I was the CEO over there last week. Larry, we're selling hope. We're not selling medical or wellness or supplies or or better co-pays. We're in the hope business. And this is really, really important because this will distinguish you from success or failure or becoming a me too or the sea of muck as far as a brand. Hey, FedEx, what are they selling? Not convenience, the post office has convenience, right? UPS has convenience. Speed? Speed? What are they known for? You got it. But now, was Federal Express the first one to do this? No way. Emory Air Freight was. But it doesn't matter because FedEx owns in our mind overnight. If it has to be the positivity overnight, they're the ones. Now, I've used, I've nothing against UPS. I've used UPS and I've always had problems tracking it. And I will never use them ever again. I just don't have a good, a good experience with UPS. But FedEx is my confidence b- brand, right? BMW, what are they really selling? You got it. Ultimate drive machine. Some people say luxury car. No. Lexus is luxury. Mercedes is luxury. Lamborghini is luxury. They're selling a driving experience that you cannot get anywhere else. Now, I have a friend of mine about a year ago. He was looking. He had a budget in mind to buy a car for his wife, and he wanted the Toyota Avalon. And I said to myself, I'll tell you what, try also the BMW, it's in the same price range. No, Larry, we have a budget. I mean, let's face it, everybody here, nobody has budgets for cars or homes. No one sticks to the budget, it's impossible. (laughs) Right? So you have a $30,000 budget for a car, and then you can drive the Beamer, the 3 Series. How many people have a BMW here? All right, I mean, it really is an unbelievable ride, right? It's not a luxury ride, it's a great ride. But so she loved the speaker systems, loved the ride, she loved the durability. Thirty-seven-five, she found the money. She bought the BMW. And, you know, you, you go look for a condominium here in San Diego, right? Let's say half a million dollars. But also you, I'm sorry, that's your budget. Half a million's your budget, right? Then you go look at the condo, whatever, and it's beautiful, and it's located not by Petco Park, whatever it might be. It's gorgeous, and the, and the view, and blah 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 blah. And it's six nineteen. You find the money. We'll always find the money for things that we want. We can justify I work hard. I deserve it. I'm going to make it happen. I'm getting the BMW. I say that because if you understand what you're selling in your brand, one of the biggest problems I see entrepreneurs have, they are afraid of charging the price that equates to the value derived. They're afraid to charge more money. Oh, no, I don't want to charge it. The consumer might not buy. But if you're delivering in your brand promise... And you're delivering an exceptional experience, like a great at BMW. You can charge the price that aligns with the value derived. Again, it's all about the whole emotional experience. You're not buying the BMW because of the four tires or the flat runs. It doesn't matter how many speakers there are. It's the whole experience, right? It's the emotional connection. Life is good. You know, Life is Good Company, right? What are they selling? Life is good. And don't tell me T-shirts. What are they selling? Optimism, you're absolutely right, and good vibes. The t shirts are an enabler to sell them. They do $120 million a year. They started selling out of a trunk and a truck out of um, a VW van years ago for five years, and then they created this character, and now they do $120 million. But they're spreading um, the whole vibe, positive vibes, optimism around the world, internationally known, and that's what they do. They're in the good vibrations, optimistic business, and the clothing enables them to get the message out. And lastly, if you heard of Fresh Express, what do they sell? Convenience. Convenience? But what category do you think they own? chopped up, ready to out? Okay. It's packaged, ready to sell okay? Now this is pretty cool. I was with last week the CEO of Duncan Brands doing a program with them. And Duncan it says, we're in the on the go society. Okay, people don't have time anymore. Duncan, for example, it used to be, we used to drive up to Dunkin' Donuts, and they are gonna be coming more to California. The last few weeks they announced they're gonna be hitting California everywhere you go. You're gonna see Dunkin' Brands pretty soon. They have 13,000 stores and very few I guess in California. So, anyhow, you used to go drive in your car, go in and get your, your coffee and your donut, and go back in your car. Then you fast forward, nobody has time for that anymore. So then they put in a drive through. People, t- people are complaining. Too long of a time for a drive through. Now they're putting in two drive throughs. Now they have what's called DD Perks. Have you heard of Dirty DD Perks? It's a mobile app that you can then um, enter what you want to buy, what time you'll be there, and you just stay in your car because you're so busy today. We'll come out and bring it to your car. It, it's really sad, but I know the millennials today, this is how you're living. <laughs> to us, we're, getting, we're adopting to it or adapting to it. But it's so true. Think of it. This little bag of lettuce right here costs two seventy-nine. dollars is it? It's lettuce cut up with some tomatoes and cubes, whatever, okay? We're so busy today, we can't even cut lettuce. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, really? I mean i mean think of how are we that busy? On the go to the side we can't cut lettuce? So they own they have so to go and about maybe I think seven years ago they sold this little idea, which is lettuce in a Ziploc bag to Chiquita Banana for eight hundred million dollars. Talk about the value of an idea. Did they invent us No. Did they invent the Ziploc bag? No. They married together, they saw a need out there, and they filled it, right? So you gotta say to yourself, what word or words can you own in the marketplace that you feel would be very hard for a competitor to dislodge, you feel is distinctive, and you own the category? This next illustration is so cool, but it's so true, and it's so sad too, it says here, we've repeatedly squashed this idea for around ten years, but now that a competitor is doing it, let's stop everything and ship it in July. <laughs> Too late. You know? So you know, years ago Gillette would always tell me, we make decisions, one third research, one third instinct, and one third of experience. You gotta go for it sooner or later. You can't wait to go to market after you've seen competition or somebody fail and now we'll do it. You're dead in the water you got to go for it. If you have a calculated risk that's really pretty good and you have a gut feeling that you have a product or a category or a brand that you feel you can conquer with and you can, like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, do not go the path may lead, go and so say there's no path leave the a trail, then you've got to go for it. But you see this so often of people being too conservative and worrying and living fear that they missed the market and they said, oh, you know, we can do that too late. I'll oh, just give another example for a second. On the... Um, Package sale to go. Dole then came in the market. And you think, hey, Dole's a big company. Let's we'll just wipe out Fresh Express. Fresh Express had something like apes on the market. Dole got 15%. So even a big company could not uh, unseat Fresh Express. Big brand, but again, Fresh Express was a first in the mind. When you occupy the first in the mind position, it's very hard for someone to unseat you. Okay. Next, you have to want to dominate your product category. I believe that marketing is a, category, is a war of categories. You have got to own something in the minds of the consumer, and there's no substitution today more than ever before for innovation, for being bold, for being disruptive. And when you look at you know companies out there, whatever, you have to say to yourself, you know, what category they really own. It's not just you know your 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 salad company or your fast driving car company. What category can you either create or you can dominate? Look at some of these brands here. I mean, I happen to know Alberto Perlman. He created Zumba. Fifteen years ago, today, 180 countries, 12 million people take a Zumba class every week of the year. It's amazing what they've created. From the new brands, whether it be Starbucks to Uber to Netflix to some of the old-line brands, Titleist, Number One Ball and Golf, North Face. But you look at all these brand names, and they, they own something, right? They, they have a category, and I'm sure many of you can relate to them. And whether you have a salon, you go to a restaurant, there's some certain. Brand voice, some panache is there of why you utilize that product, that service. How many of you use Open Table? How many of you call on the phone to make a reservation? Two or three, right? But I mean, it's a go-to brand. Why isn't there another Open Table out there? Because they dominate this product category so big time that who's going to come in there and kind of like push them aside? Until right now, it's not happening. So, number four. I want you to be inventive and unlock the market. And I say that, if I hear one more person say to me, we think out of the box. Out of the box is such a yawner. You see it all the time, we think out of the box. It is a yawner. You, what you wanna do, you wanna be inventive, not think out of the box. So you wanna be inventive and you wanna unlock your market. And what you wanna do is break through what I call the marketing clutter and be known as, a, as an aspirational brand. Now, I'm not sure what they're teaching you here, and I, I'm going to kind of go on a limb, but I don't believe that in marketing we're trying to um, fulfill, cl- fulfill a customer's needs. It's always about customers' needs. I don't recall somebody calling Steve Jobs up and saying, hey, you know something? Just don't me. I need a telephone on my ear when I'm walking in the streets. Can you please make one for me? It's not about needs. I believe it's about wants. How do you become a brand people want, not need? Now, my wife, works in, my wife works in Boston, and she drives two miles to the train station. She happens to have a Lexus. She doesn't need a Lexus. She wants it. In fact, going you think about it, all she needs is a bicycle uh, to go to the train station. In fact, I'm thinking think of more. All she needs to do is walk there. So it's not about needs. Nobody needs a $5,000 Rolex watch. You want it. Nobody needs to come to the school, but you want to. So you have to say to yourself, how do we create our brand so we're a want, not a need? People want to work for us. They want to buy it. They want to write about us. Right? They, they want to touch us in some way. They want to invest in us. Whatever it might be, how do we create to be a want, not a need? And I want to give an example that's really pretty cool, that you know, there's a lot of different categories out there that are homogenous. You know, banks, every bank has checking accounts, home equity loans, Auto loans—they all have the same thing. All law firms have the same list of services, right? All country clubs—18 holes, grill room, pool, tennis, nine and dine, whatever. So, when you live in an overcrowded society, especially of a category that's so commoditized, how do you break through the clutter? I want to give an example how it happens, even um, uh, in the banking business, which some people might not think it could happen. There's a ladder here because you have to own a rung in the ladder. Not in any hierarchical hierarchy, but what run can you own that nobody can displace you? So I gave a speech about three years ago at, for the Minnesota Banker Association in Duluth, Minnesota, and there are about maybe 400 bankers out there. And at one point in time, I'm sitting standing here, I'm saying, you say, know, they're not going to do anything. To say they're going to go back to their own thing, you know, checking accounts, and they're, they're going to yell rational. We have we've a better rate for car loans today, 1.9 versus 2.3, and they're going to be yelling rational, not emotional. So a banker calls me up about a year and a half ago. and says to me, you know, Larry, I took your advice, and we are winning the college loan business in Duluth. And I said to him, what are you doing? He said, I took your advice, and it works. Now, there's one bank in Duluth, Minnesota, that's known to be the college loan bank. What they did was, they're not just do great loans, but again, if you want to create experience, and you want to own the category, and you want to be the college loan bank, what do you have to do? You have to, you have to offer services. He says, once a month, we have a walk-in night, we have school counselors come in, work with the students and the parents on resume writing, how to interview, how to write your essay, um, how to pick a reach school, a safety school. They counsel them. So the bank invested in counselors to help the parent and the students be successful in their journey to go to a certain college. So right now he says we have 38% of the market in Duluth on college loans. So we, we are the college loan category. So other banks say, no, no, we offer college loans. That's fine, but it's too late. Like my previous slide, they already own it. So I'm just showing you that even to illustrate it, even a, a category like banks can find a niche in the market and on something really special. Now let's face it, besides the college loan banking business, you can get your, your bippy that these parents, because of how the bank's helping their son or daughter find a college and finance it, they'll get their, they make it their, their business, uh, business, right? They might get their home equity loan there, mortgage, whatever it is, because your bank is my bank. So how do we create the feeling that your brand is my brand and there's no other brand out there? I'm laser-beamed. When it comes to banking, you're my brand. You help me out with my children, I'm going to now do all the business I can, and also I'm going to become a brand ambassador to all my friends. How, how you're a great bank. So isn't, isn't it really fascinating that a, a, a category that's so you know, commoditized can take brand marketing strategies and own something in the minds of the consumer. They talk about owning things. Let's look at some, some brands today, okay? Tide. Tide didn't create detergent, but Tide packaged it. I mentioned about Duncan Brands before, on the go. A- anybody here have a Tide stick? Okay, is there another stick around? I haven't heard of it. So Tide created the market, they own the market. Airbnb. Does anybody here know the, uh, the origin of how Airbnb got started? You do? Okay. So what I heard, and a friend of my friend of mine knows the owners, whatever, the founders, back, I guess, what, how many years ago in San Francisco, oh, these two fellas were from the Rhode Island School of Design. They, 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 they majored in design, and they couldn't get a job. They moved to San Fran, and then they saw that there was a convention in town, and the hotels were all sold out. So they had an apartment. And they say, hey, why don't we promote, I, mean, I think maybe it was, it was Craigslist, why don't we promote we have an um, air mattress and we'll give you a bagel and coffee in the morning for 50 bucks. Fast forward, the valuation's $31 billion today. But that's how it was born. They saw that there was no rooms available. They offered one night, then two nights, then three nights, but it was all Airbnb, air mattress, bed and breakfast, combined together. It's pretty cool. Take the GoFundMe. GoFundMe has so far had, is the most trusted platform for funding. They have already generated 50 million dollars I'm sorry 50 million um, people have donated money for a total of five billion dollars to date, on an average day, eight to 10,000 people start a GoFundMe campaign. So again, who else is doing this? Nobody. I illustrate these go-to brands because these brands created categories and now they own them. And it'll be very, very hard for somebody else to come in and push them out of the circuit. Next, I mentioned early on, my first slide, you have to deliver an exceptional experience. Anybody can do good or better. Remember the movie City Slickers with Jack Palance and um, Billy Crystal? Remember the scene where Billy Crystal asked asked Jack Palance Curly, what's, what's like the most important thing in life? And remember what Jack Powell said, Curly? Yeah, he said, it's just one thing, and only you know what it is. Well, marketing and building businesses is one thing, and the sum of the customer experience creates your brand. It's as simple as that. So you gotta say to yourself, what are we doing to really embrace our customer? Um, why, why are we not treating them like they're our best friend? Um, You know, it's just so important that to go beyond what can we do to deliver the unexpected? And these things, again, as I said early on, in the onset, nothing to do with budget. It has to do with how you think about your brand. So talk about delivering experience. A while ago, Bain surveyed 300 executives of companies in this country, and 80% of them said they deliver a superior customer performance. 80%. 80%. They then went to the customers of these companies. What percent of the customers do you feel felt that these companies were delivering a superior customer experience? What percent? 30? 20? 15? You know, you know the fact is? 8%. Wow. Now, if this was done by... I'm not... I'm not by you know, um, San Diego Consulting, you might think, well, who are they, right? This is Bain. This is a legitimate study. But the biggest thing is, well, how can there be such a disconnect between the corporate Ivy tower and the consumer? This is huge. You know I mean, the people at Gillette, it's interesting, if you're go to have a business school, after you go to Gillette after six months, you go into sales for six months and then the Harvard uh, graduate says, well, hold on, hold on. I went to Harvard B School. I'm a brand manager. I don't go to sales. No, no. you got to know on, this, on the, on the um, aisle of Walgreens, CVS, whatever, a Target, what have you, why is somebody picking up Schick, picking up Gillette, and making a decision? you got to know what's happening the, on, on the street level. Otherwise, you're working in a vacuum in the Ivy Tower, right? But this is really huge. And to go further, every 1% of brand loyalty that FedEx loses is worth $100 million in revenue. Yeah, 1%, that's all it is, 100 million. But it it blows my mind, how can we be so disconnected with the consumer who's really the reason we're in business? Like Peter Drucker said, the only reason business is in business is to have a customer. And we have choices today. We have a lot of choices for all product categories. So why aren't we more in touch? And I don't know that answer, but it blows my mind that still people are creating strategies and, and creating programs and products, initiatives, whatever, and they're not really in tune with their customer at all. It's, it's sad. So I just say to you, whatever business you have, whatever, your customer is your best friend. Know what they want. Right? Number six, you get got to inspire everyone in your company to live your brand. Energize your team. How can you expect them to improve their uh, performance and the success in your companies if they don't know what you believe in and they don't feel a part of the team. Now, I want to show you a really cool illustration here. This is, this is a quote from the prior vice chair of Disney. He said, A brand is the result of a thousand small gestures. It is our job as marketers to make each gesture count. We do it by creating active brand experiences using every encounter and every interaction we have with a customer, with our brand, as an opportunity to show them why our brand is the best you have the opportunity to fashion your organization where everyone's involved, everyone's fully engaged, and everyone's a player. If Disney can do this down in Florida with 50,000 employees, you can do this in your companies. And again, he, he defines marketing as a gesture. And it's true because these gestures count big time. You know, if you, go to a, if you go to Disney World and you ask for the men's ladies room or where's the, the popcorn whatever, they never point. Pointing is rude. It's always three fingers or it's five. That's, that's where you should help people to go. And, I mean, I, I used to consult with Disney. Disney is peeved. If you're satisfied at Disney, they're not happy. Mm-hmm. You know why? Disney wants loyalty. You come once in 10 years, once in five years, they're not happy. They want loyalty. They want you to come three times a year. No, really, I know somebody in Boston. <laughs> I, I don't get it. He goes four times a year to Disney. He's 52 years old. He goes with his wife. I don't know how much Magic Mountain and Thunder Mountain, and I, I, I just don't understand what, how you go there four times a year. I, I don't get it. I love Disney, but I just don't understand. I mean, he's really addicted to Disney. I mean, I've never been in his house, but he must have Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is everywhere. But, um, but as far as gestures, I want to sh- show some illustrations here about that, okay? Now let's hit the ritz Calpen, for example, and I want to give you true stories, because again, nothing to do with budget. I was at the Ritz-Carlton in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, giving a speech, and they put me up there. I give a speech to the Puerto Rico Hotel and Tourism Association, and they they there's like two weeks in two weeks I was there. So I said, you know it's a shame I have a, a, a Ritz-Carlton room four nights on the water. So I said you know somebody should, somebody should come with me. I should have called Sean. Sean, come on down, right? You gonna come, right? Absolutely. You just told Dean I'm leaving. I got to go um, to a conference in Puerto Rico. <laughs> so I called my son. He was busy. My wife didn't want to call my daughter. That time she she was in DC. Dad, I'm in. She flies. She flies there. So here, and this is a true story. Talk about gestures. This is so important to understand. So we get there, and um, you know, from wheels on to wheels up, they take care of you. Now, is any room really? Is any hotel room worth a thousand dollars? The physical room, the rational, is the room worth a thousand dollars? Of course not. But if the experience is. Then you'll find the money either on a special occasion or just you want to just treat yourself, or whatever, to stay there. So the next morning, my daughter wakes up, and she's dead. It just dawned on me, I forgot my hairspray. I said, okay, no problem. So it's 7 in the morning, true story. I call downstairs. Would you have hairspray? No problem. We'll bring her right up. Now, another hotel. Nothing. I'm not not knocking Marriott. I know Annie, who's the CEO of of Marriott. I'm not knocking Risk Calton. I'm I'm not knocking the highest or anybody else, okay? Any hotel you you call, I need hairspray? No problem, sir. The salon opens at 9 o'clock in the morning, right? Which is fine. Rich Carlton, they go into the salon, they get a few. They don't wait until it's open. It's a gesture. Then we go downstairs because I had a day off, and I went for breakfast with my daughter. And when we were leaving, I remember the only lady said to me, sir, would you want me to prepare for you an iced coffee and an orange juice for your daughter and yourself? And when she said prepare for me, she knew we had iced coffee and we had um, orange juice. But sure. I didn't expect that. They delivered the unexpected. We then go to the beach, and everyone's in hammocks. And there's no more trees available or hammocks or whatever. And the guy no, no problem, we'll get it. The guy runs to like a little shed, brings out a hammock with five towels and his hammer, and he's banging on the beach or whatever, you know, the tree. And he, he goes to the place. And he put the um, towels, three towels on the, um, the hammock, on the, on, on the ropes. And my daughter said to him, I'm just curious, why are you putting the towels on the rope? Said, oh, at the risk counting, we don't want you to walk around with crisscrosses on your back. All right? You see where I'm going now with the whole experience? Then that night, we went to the dinner there. Italian restaurant was great. They messed up. To me, it was fine. I'm with my daughter. I'm not in a rush. I have four hours. It didn't matter to me. They made my veal differently, whatever, and it came out 10 minutes later, and they were not happy. They bring us over this whole crudite platter. They bring us over two bottles of wine, because they felt bad that they, they kind of disrupted my, my meal. And to me, it was like, I didn't really care. I, really, I mean, I could care less i talk to my daughter about her life, about school. The meal was secondary. We had the meal, and later on, all of a sudden, they bring out a platter of cannolis and desserts, whatever. Oh, this is from the manager. Again, he wants to apologize for what happened tonight. And I'm saying to myself, what happened tonight? Like, what really <laughs> happened? <laughs> I don't get it, right? So the, the moral of the story is, if you feel that that kind of surface, sur- oh, well, one last thing, then we'll leave the next morning, I want to get my, uh, my airline ticket. Now, in a regular hotel, which is just fine. Go downstairs, your second right, first left, and back of the men's room, there it is. You'll see two computers there. Edward Scalton, sir, let me show you where they are. They take you downstairs, left, right, through the alley. They take you there. So like Disney said, it's all about gestures. So if we believe the experience is worth $1,000, we're gonna pay the money. If we don't feel it's worth it, it doesn't matter. But I'm saying that all the things that contribute to the value of the experience had nothing to do with cost, had to do with the culture, and the culture starts from the top down. Like the, my, my friend, who's the CEO of Duncan Brands, just came out with a book last month called The, uh, the Challenge Culture. And it talks about culture and challenge. About today, it's all about the culture. If you have no culture, you'll have no challenge. The Marriott, when I was with Arnie Sorensen a month ago in Boston, somebody asked him, Arnie, what is the number one thing that's important to your hotel chain? They have 30 brands now since they acquired Style and everything else. He said, Marriott, Larry, there's two words that make or break my brand. We must deliver, he said, an authentic welcome. We're all about authentic welcome. You come to the front desk, you're going to be welcomed, open arms, embraced, not phony, authentically, thank you, H- how's your flight in, but whatever it is, whatever. And that's how, he said, Larry, authentic welcome is my make it or break it. Someone told me from a while ago that the most important thing for their brand in a country club the, where they have golf communities is the bathroom. How many of you are golfers here? I know you're golfers, golfer, <laughs> Sean. Sean's good. I suck. Sean, Sean's good. Okay. When, you, when you go to a, golf, to a, to a country club or a resort and play golf, before you tee off, where's the first place you go? To the bathroom. Right? You do. You wash watching. What, what are you going to do? You're getting ready to play golf in go the bathroom. If that bathroom has towels on the floor and the water's overflowing and, and it's filthy, whatever, what does it say about your brand? Man, if they don't care about the bathroom, I wonder how the service is here. I wonder how the food's here. I wonder how the cleanliness is here. That says a lot. He says his number one thing. He's been there for 22 years. The number one thing he does every morning, they make sure those, every bathroom is sparkling clean at 5.30 in the morning. So to him, the bathroom is the number one thing, a point of entry, the first touch point for a golfer is the bathroom. So say to yourself, in your business, what's the first touch point? I want to share something else that's not up here. Oh, and Disney, I already talked about. Um, I want to share something else as well. I mean, you know, it's so trivial, but the more and more I, I go through these experiences, it's like, man, you know, this stuff is not hard sometimes, but people just don't get it. I was consulting with a company that made wigs, women's wigs. And I was referred to them, and I said, gee, I, I, who makes wigs, right? Well, I learned that this company was the number one brand as a direct marketing catalog company for women who needed wigs, Unfortunately, either with cancer or alopecia or whatever, okay? And so I was the, uh, the acting executive VP, marketing, branding, whatever you wanna call me, right? So I would go downstairs in the building, a two level building, go downstairs, and we had 40 people in the call center, okay, taking orders. Well, what, the second thing I got there, I learned 30% of the orders, 30, every, every week, $2 million of sales incurred, and every week, 30% came back in. That's, that's a lot of returns. That, okay, that's almost $700,000 return over a $2 million revenue gain, right? So this is weird. So I went downstairs, and I used to have Monday, I call it slices. I brought pizza, but I wanted slices of the company. I want to hear what's going on, because this number should be like 7% or 5% whatever. The chairman of the board says to me, Larry, we noticed, you know, we're a little concerned. I said, what are you concerned about, Michael? He says to me, why do you keep going downstairs to the hourly workers in the call center? Why are you spending more time up in the executive level? And I said to them, oh, what, do you, what do you mean? Like the people downstairs, they have the touch point to the customer, they are the lifeblood of to the company. We're, we're getting back $700,000 a week from two million sales, and the, the, the other executives. They were like, you know, they didn't understand. Why, why is Larry going downstairs and kind of meddling and talking, right? Talking to these hourly workers? Well, f- well, people, the hourly workers make it or break it. And they told me something really important. I learned from them that when you print, you know, pro- a brochure or whatever, especially if you w- print a, wi- a wig color and you match it here, you don't want to be obviously a wig on. It's got to be perfect. When you In the printing process, no colors match up perfectly in, in a brochure. Okay, They look fine, or even these colors here, these can be the perfect right colors, but if you're talking about your skin tone you're here, that's critical. So I came up with an idea saying, since we sourced all the fibers uh, overseas, real here and, and um, synthetic, why not give, if you're a blonde, why not put the actual product on like a little, like, almost like a paint chip or whatever thing, a little clip, and show here are the five blondes. And we did that. What happened? It went from 30% returns to 6% returns in two months. So talking to, quote, unquote, the little people in the business paid off big dividends. And I, I, I don't understand how people don't understand that really, that front desk person, that person who's cleaning the hotel room, that person who's not making six figures is critical to your brand. You know, in Disney, they have 50,000 people. So everybody is one 50,000th of the brand image to that organization. So if you have a company of 20 people, everyone's one 20th. So you got to make sure that everybody in your company is a brand ambassador, knows the brand, understands it, lives your brand, believes in the brand, and wants to succeed. It's a gesture again. So what are you doing in your companies to ensure all your team members, all your employees, love your brand, respect your brand, and are doing right by you to envision and carry out a brand promise that you feel is critical to your success? And last... Um, Create a great business story. I saw on the onset that a great brand is not the result of a great marketing campaign. It's creating a great business story. Make your brand the egg brand. This is probably the most you know, telling uh, moment of truth about a brand, about how much loyalty you really have. And it says here, what if your customer, let's say hypothetically, here, let's pick, like, um, let's pick Kashi. Let's say you love Kashi. And let's say your brand is out of stock. A, will your customer wait to be replenished to buy it, because they love it so much, because that Kashi brand or that certain category, you are their brand. Number two, go to another store to buy it. Or three, go, you know, it's a great brand, but I'll pick something else to, to fulfill my need. Well, number three happens, if they pick some, something else, what happens? You've lost that customer. Once that customer goes to another brand, and they love the brand, they love the experience, it's very difficult, if ever, to get them back to your brand. And this really is a brand's moment of truth as far as how loyal is your customer if this situation happened? Not just in the cereal, but if you're out of stock for a week, or you don't have the product for two days, or all of a sudden you're closed till noon and they need something before noon. What will your customer do? That loyalty factor is huge. So, you know, in your, as we close here, in the first part, you know, you have people in your companies and this coulda, woulda, shoulda. Uh, you have a lot of people there. I tried it before. It doesn't work. We don't have the money. They're, they're moaning. They're groaning. Anyone can do what we do. Blah, blah, blah. Jack Welch, who I happened to meet five years ago through a friend of mine, which was the most amazing experience, because Jack always says, if you don't change the game, the game will change you. He says, I don't care if it's your mother, your father, your grandfather, your daughter, your sister. Get rid of them. You know, get rid of them. You know, you don't need them. All right because they're a bullseye for trouble, and they're viruses. Okay? You, can't, you can't build a business with people who are naysayers. It can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. Because I feel those that are saying it can't be done are watching those getting it done. So in turn, be a brand champion, drive your remarkable, remarkable success, and really, you've got to just enjoy the journey, and you'll see good things will happen. So thank you, I appreciate being here, and I hope you'll take away things and just uh, you know, build your brands, right? Thank you. We're pleased to have two CEOs who I really feel are real game changers. They share their insight and strategies to building best-selling brands that dominate categories, break through the marketing clutter, drive growth, and their overall improving performance. In today's rapidly evolving, ever-changing competitive landscape, it takes dynamic CEOs, brand champions with an amazing entrepreneurial spirit to lead and inspire their teams to create bold and disruptive marketing ideas initiatives designed to drive business performance to a new plateau of success. And tonight, so we're pleased to have two of these leaders with us. Please welcome Pierre and Simon. So I'm gonna ask you, Pierre and then Simon, tell us, your businesses, what is that single um, idea that you've created that you feel um, is poised to be a category leader?
2: Great question. First of all, I loved your presentation. It took like two pages of notes, and I was thinking (laughs) that you were gonna ask that question. You know, for me, it's, it's actually very simple. Um, so what, what we do, for those of you who don't know, um, we're a high-tech agricultural farming operation where we use technology to, to offset or to uh, overcome challenges in agriculture. So we grow in climate-controlled greenhouses using very automated and computerized systems to do things. What my laser focus is, is to bring convenience, the ready-to-eat salad, to organic and healthy so typically today, that ready to eat is not synonymous with organic or uh, you know it's 2.79 like you said right. because it's the lowest cost lettuce available, and I want I am building the market for um, that premium at the just slightly more premium cost mm-hmm. um, with convenience. So it's convenient, organic, healthy.
1: Now, what was your defining moment? Because I know you majored in college in chem- in. Computer science. Computer science. How did you go from computer science to lettuce?
2: <laughs> so th- there's two answers to that. One, um, I had a professor who was uh, growing, helping NASA grow lettuce on the Mir space, space station. And I was just naively inspired by how amazing that concept was and I thought, why can't that type of technology be done down here? Um, now the flip side of that is I have just been super motivated to tackle something difficult um, and and just be different. So I thought that that was a novel concept and I have just been supremely focused in um, trying to do something that people thought would be difficult to do.
1: Right. And Siman, in your area as far as what you're doing is totally different from what Pierre's doing. Um, what do you feel again? What is that single idea that you created which, which you've gotten a lot of recognition, and even, I mean, you mentioned today that Time Magazine recognized your innovation, your product as, like, I'll phrase it properly. What, what was it, the number one innovation of Best the year?
3: invention of 2018.
1: In, that, in, in 2018. That's awesome. <clears throat> so, so tell us also that for a category that you created that you're going to own, what category did you create, and how do you see it really being poised to make a real difference in the consumer's mind to the point that it would be very, very hard for another competitor to come in, dislodge, since it appears that you are really the first in this product category.
3: Yeah, so for people who don't know what we do, it's it's basically a technology service to give a remote pair of eyes for people who cannot see. So think about as borrowing somebody else's eye on demand for blind people. we do it by basically combining the concepts from augmented reality and artificial intelligence, but that at the core we also have human in the loop. Uh, so literally, blind people can use the service today to navigate around the world. But I guess to your point, um, the thing that we are like creating is, we basically created like, a whole new space. If you think about blind community, traditionally they had a white cane, they have guide dogs and you know there are a bunch of apps on your phone for you know, text uh, pattern recognitions, you know, OCR algorithms. But the way we are going into this market is, like, essentially creating these new experiences uh, for people who cannot see. So think about what does it mean for you to go to Disneyland and experience the Mickey Mouse show if you are blind, right? Um, And that kind of uh, description or the visual description to create a vivid mental imagery for people who cannot see is what we focus on. And that's sort of our positioning, which is expanding the experiences of life for people who cannot see. And in short, we call Ira's description of life.
1: Now, in your case, what was your defining moment? Did you have a friend or a family member that was visually impaired and you kind of felt that you're going to all of a sudden create this new innovation? Like, what was the moment, the turning point that, that got you into this space?
3: Well, I had to finish two credits of for my grade school of management. <laughs> no, the, rea- the reality is, is 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 actually just just that. Um, I, uh, I, I I have a I have a friend who happens to be blind. He uh, went blind at the age of thirty four. Uh, two daughters, wife. He was a weatherman before, and for him, the single most frustration was you know, someone I cannot get out of my damn house and be myself. I had to wait for my daughters to come home or my wife to come home for me to go and get a flower to my wife. Um, so, I mean, as a technologist, I was uh, uh, very much into, you know, wearable devices and, you know, the Google Glass thing came out. Right. So I was brainstorming with him, hey, you know, what do you think about having sort of this visual description for you to make your own decisions and, you know, interact with the, you know, physical world and negotiate with the environment. I said, like, will it work? Well, we can try. The cool thing was uh, I was just about to finish my MBA at Radio School of Management right here. Uh, so for my last two credits, I chose this particular idea, and I have to dig deeper into what the market opportunity is, just to realize that there are 22 million blind people in the United States and 285 worldwide, and it costs a bunch of money to provide sort of the care and the assistance for these people. So we are not only creating a multi-billion dollar business, but we are also reducing the overall cost right. uh, for everybody.
1: So in, in both of you, because you're both new businesses, and you're both creating new categories, and you're poised to really own that category right now, what do you feel from the day one when you had the idea you know, in mind, what are some of the smaller or larger speed bumps that you've encountered to get to where you are today? So for me... Um,
2: Growing a head of lettuce is, like, the hardest thing ever to do consistently every day. Uh, you know, my, my biggest learning curve has been the actual agricultural component of the business. When I started the business, um, I was in my young 20s, um, and I would show up to, a, to the Kroger, Safeway, Costco, whatever of the world, and I would try to pitch my product, and they would just look at me as... Okay. Is this your family business? No, it's mine. Right. Um, and, you know, I just had no credibility whatsoever, especially when coming to, to you know, in the, in the tech world and other mm-hmm. things, you know, the, the idea can stand on its own, in, in its own merit. Right. But here I'm coming to sell a commodified item into a very competitive space. And they, they look at you as you're going against juggernauts and, right. you know, why displace the ready pack to put you
1: in here? Mm-hmm. So that was a, the most significant thing for me to overcome. So when you talk about competitiveness. Who do, who do you think you're competing with right now? Like, for example, you know, I, we, all, we always want to know, we always know why people buy from us. I call it negative problem tracking. Like, why do people say no? So when you have this great story to tell and you have an audience, whatever, what's the reason, Pierre, you're hearing somebody say, thanks, sounds good, but we'll pass. But, I mean, did you hear no? I heard many no's. Okay. And so <laughs> what, what's the reason you're hearing no?
2: You know, for me, I have two obstacles to overcome. I have to sell to the uh, chain store to convince them to take my product. And then the ultimate customer has to then buy into that product and and have sales. So I have two hurdles to overcome and both have different messages. Mm. The message to the retail store is completely different. To them, I'm selling them on the reliability, consistency, etc. of my service to them, to the the buyer, that I'm going to be a headache-free guy. When you put a PO, you get the order. Totally different story to the consumer. That's where the innovative positioning, and all those things are very important. So balancing those two is something that I don't think most farmers do. The majority of uh, the farming industry, I'm, I'm so excited to be in it because it's relatively not that sophisticated. Hmm. You know, it, it's very, um, it's been around for many generations and there's kind of the right way to do it. And so coming in with a very, not say outside of the box, but innovative and creative way to, um, you know, what I sell is a, a, a unique experience in the product itself. So, for example, we're doing Romaine now. Um, it's coming in a vacuum-packed, um, uh, nitrogen-flushed package. So it lasts three times as long. And at Costco right now, you go and you buy a six-pack. It's huge. You probably don't use the whole thing. You throw half of it away before. Now they're in individually contained cells where oh. they only go bad as you use them or it oh. stays fresh.
1: So unique experience. So, so you're bringing sophistication to an unsophisticated marketplace, right? Absolutely. So man, how how would you define your customer? I, I know you mentioned they're visually impaired, are they are they blind, right? But I mean mindset wise, what kind of a customer or consumer would want to use your product and what kind of um, profile of a consumer would not want to take advantage of this amazing breakthrough that you've created. Everybody wants it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody no doesn't want it. Um, so I mean, if you if if you think about like right now what we are building, you know, the so-called technology, we're definitely going after focusing on the blind market. But just to give some context on what the hell is our technology, we essentially use wearable devices. It has a camera. It connects to um, AT and T network. Um, when you call in. Uh, there is a remote person who has access to a dashboard. We call it Mission Control Cell Dashboard. And when they pick the request, they are essentially immersed in your world. So let's say one of you guys are wearing the glasses in here, and the agent picks up. They are living in your environment. They are seeing through what you are seeing. But beyond that, they have access to the indoor navigation of this particular building. Uh, we grab sensor information such as accelerometer, magnetometer. Uh, we combine all that. It's 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 literally sort of extension of you that is living in your eye, uh, ear. I mean, uh, that is describing you everything or assisting you whatever you need. And beyond that, we push the technology a little bit farther, which is you know when you walk into a restaurant, we pull up your uh, menus and you know figure out what your uh, uh, um, items are already right. So so if you think about like what we are building in here, we, we are we are building a like a digital. You yourself uh, that is cloned somewhere else you know on the, on, the, on the computer side, on the cloud, right? Uh, and the idea in here is today it is definitely focused for people who are blind, providing that visual description and providing that uh, uh, request for Uber or Lyft, or you go to uh, airports, you know how do I get to uh, you know gate 35? You walk into Costco, you look left and you look right. I don't know where the hell to find my gym, <laughs> gym beams, right? Uh, I had to literally, literally like walk around twice. Hmm. To remember where the hell is alcohol section? Uh, I still don't know um, so 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 the whole idea is right now we are you know targeting like blind consumer, but at the at the core, it's about um, extending you uh, yourself to be even more efficient. Um, we are going after elderly market as well, right um, Most of the airports actually provide the service for our blind people. And they are already asking us, hey, you know, we get a lot of old people in here, and they get lost as well. So rather than having a physical person help them out, you know, can we can we extend your service? So, um, so so our our customer is not just blind people, but also family and friends of blind people, right? right? If you think about where where are we saving time and money for blind person, it's the person sitting next to them. Uh, if a blind person is an employee and for an employer, it's other employees around you that's becoming more efficient. Uh, at home, you know you are dependent on your family member, or partner, or sister, or brother, and for life they've been depending on them. They don't want to be dependent on somebody so uh-huh. much, right? So at the end of the day, yes, while the product is for your uh, for, for a person who is visually impaired, our target is the family and friends of blind people or. The you know airports uh, who are serving visually impaired customers, the Costco's and Targets who need to assist the blind person when they come there. So that's 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 uh, you know that, that that's how our positioning
1: would be. Well, so with your market being like three hundred million people, how are you prioritizing? You know, you mentioned the airports. You're in five thousand AT and T AT and stores. I mean, there's so much going on at one time. I mean, I'm sure you know the old, the old saying your only limitation is your imagination. So how are you prioritizing and focusing with the size company you are right now, targeting yep. which target I to go after, yep. and how are you also targeting the person who's given the guidance through the glasses to show the visualization of where they are, or whatever. how are you recruiting those people as well to make sure that you have the back end um, you know in sync with the front end
3: yeah so so for, for the first one, the good thing is I mean we are a tech company at the end of the day, and we know exactly where people are going, what people are doing, and we profile you know everything about them right so uh, well, one thing we found was when we went commercial, uh, people love to navigate through the airports it's one of the most freeing experiences that you can possibly imagine. I mean, you go to LAX and we all get lost. Right? It's like ah, now I have to figure all these things out. Yeah. Um, and imagine walking into Walmart. Sorry, Costco is another example. <laughs> uh, but but uh, we have seen a tremendous increase of usage for uh, at the airports as well as tremendous amounts of value uh, uh, for a blind customer to navigate into the uh, you know in the airport. Right? It's a freeing experience. Now, the cool thing is on the airport side, they have huge, huge problems uh, with serving people who are blind um, because it's, it's, it's very costly. Right now, when a blind person goes, on, goes to an airport, they put them in a wheelchair. They don't have mobility problems, but um, they still had to put them in the wheelchair. So you go from gate one to gate 10, uh, and that's it. They are gone. So what if you want to go to the restroom? What if you want to go pick up some food? What if your gate is changed? What if there is a safety issue and you have to, like, exit? Um, so, so um, you know, for the airports, the value proposition is, oh, now I have this high-touch service that I can rely on. I will provide it to my customers who are blind. And then at low cost, at the same time, you know, we know the customers more than anybody else in the world, right? So we have that high-touch trust factor mm-hmm. of that Ira brand. Uh, I have Ira, I'm good. Right, mm-hmm. So that's, that's the level of uh, comfort that our customers get.
1: Yeah, as you are evolving, you're evolving, because you're a young company, you mentioned even during the cocktail hour, you have one location right now, and your vision is to have these little mini farms all around the world, and the numbers that you're creating as far as lettuce, the 300 and something thousand, 500,000 heads of lettuce are grown per acre per month. Um, how, do you, how do you envision keeping your brand uh, fresh and relevant as you evolve? Because there are certain things you do in a growing business in the first stages, and then different challenges or different growth opportunities uh, come about as you're expanding. So what's, what's your vision? Or how are you gonna keep your, your, your whole brand fresh and relevant like it is today so you don't lose focus?
2: Good question. Staying laser focused is a, a focus for us. Yeah, yeah. You know, We constantly have opportunities coming to our doorstep. Mm. I would say you have more opportunities than you can handle. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, and actually, one of my board members says most young companies die from indigestion than starvation. Meaning, huh. you know, you, you take on too much versus starving from what you can get. Right. And what we have done is I only do one. I grow one product. That's it. Um, and I, I intend to build the synonymity the, the, of, of what this brand represents. Mm-hmm. I don't want to expand into a million different things, right. um, and I'm going to keep it laser focused. Mm-hmm. Um, just like 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 what you explained. You know, I talk about my startup, my challenges, and my successes. Right. Um, there's definitely not one universal answer uh, right. for anything. Um, it's just different ways to, to, mm-hmm. to get to the finish line. Um, so. For me, it's really about building my, my brand, as I mentioned, not just with the consumer, mm. but at the business level. That's where I think I can make huge plays. If I can build my brand name within the, let's say, the Costco's of the world, right. if I can get Amazon to pique their interest, if right. I can get any of these other big players, I don't have to try to convince uh, 200 million consumers to buy my lettuce. I need to convince three big giants to sell it. Right. Um, and and that's the way that I'm going after it. So I'm staying focused in that space, and I'm trying to 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 take on masses through small strategic
1: maneuvers. Are you getting any pushback at all? And if you are, what what's the pushback you're getting?
2: You know, the when I first started off, I didn't get the FaceTime with the high up executives in these companies, and there is huge pushback when you're speaking with the buyers mm-hmm. or or the folks who are not as sophisticated as the higher up management. When I was able to, in whatever way, get into the door of those higher level execs, Mm -hmm. the CFO, CEO level type people, all of a sudden the level of creativity and innovation completely changes. It's not this confrontational debate. It's a, you know, you can sell them. I'm positioning in their mind how their brand can be enhanced and et cetera. And when when I found myself in that scenario, it became like butter. Um, but it took, I mean, years mm. to, to get there. And I feel like it, it's a critical mass. You know, once you're there and you're in that network, now you can kind of flow through at that, trans, transgress at that same level right. to other companies and et
1: cetera. Right. Sure. I'm just curious. The last few months, we all heard that there was a problem in the whole scare about romaine lettuce, and people call me and saying, oh, Larry, the cedar salad is dead. Don't, don't use romaine lettuce anymore. Just use uh, iceberg or whatever. Well, what, sure, I'm, I don't know exactly what happened, but I got bits and pieces. What happened with the romaine le- lettuce scare? And what are you doing with your business, because you mentioned romaine lettuce a minute ago, to ensure that whatever PR, whatever recall there was on romaine, it naturally is not going to happen with the upper end?
2: So it, it, it's taboo to say this, but yeah. when these things happen, it helps my business. Right. Not that I want that to happen. No, but sure. Um, yeah. But th- the reason is because these these events happen because they're growing out in open fields. And almost 99.9% of the time, it's some kind of a runoff event. So typically, imagine you have a big farm and there's a big rain event, and somehow a water source gets contaminated that you it with with uh, feces from some right. animal. And it's virtually impossible to, on that scale, prevent that. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What we do is being indoors and closed and all that kind of thing, I just use that as a to further my point with my B2C, right. uh, B2B customers and say, guys, this is why you don't want your name. You don't want your Kroger, your Costco, whatever, being your name dragged through the mud. Mm. I have a solution for you that can
1: mitigate your risk significantly, and they're all yours. Wow, that's great. So, mind, um, not, not, Naturally, something near and dear to my heart is the Boston Marathon. is a Bostonian. And I read a little while ago that you were involved with the mayor and the governor of doing something with the marathon and some other programs. Can you share with us what you're doing or what you did with the marathon with your technology? And also, is this something that you can model and bring to New York and Chicago and other cities? I mean, is Boston a beta site for this type of application? Yes. Yeah. Uh,
3: What we did with Boston Marathon. So for for the first time ever in the history, a blind person used our technology to run the entire... Boston Marathon and experience it, which is pretty cool. So it was really cool. Uh, we got like 50 million impressions on that one event. 50 million? Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, what are, okay, yeah, So, you know, I was talking about, like, how our business model, right? So we do focus on the B2, B2C sort of a model where, you know, we do sell Ira service. We call it Ira Access to, you know, all the businesses, right? So we rolled, out, we rolled out to all the 30 airports and, you know, all the 5,000 AT&T stores. Uh, day before yesterday, we rolled out to 9,000 Walgreens stores, so on and so forth. So um, so, 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 if you think about it, it, basically we are simply using a geofence technology, and when you walk into a Walgreens, you'll get a notification, hey, if you're a blind person, you can shop here for free, right? So they don't have to pay anything, but Walgreens will pay us. Uh, so we are we are basically modeling this after uh, Wi-Fi, right? So if you think about ten years ago, you go to an airport, you will probably are paying out of your pocket for Wi-Fi. Uh, now you go to an airport, you have free Wi-Fi. You go to a coffee shop, you have free Wi-Fi. You go to work, your employer is paying for your Wi-Fi. But when you go home, you are paying for your Wi-Fi out of your pocket, right? So essentially, we are recreating the same model. Now, by doing so, if you if you think about a city and a smart city, what is you know what makes a city smart, right? So it's about, for us, it's about being more accessible. You come to land in the San Diego Airport. Um, it's an Ira accessible. From there, you go to Gaslam Downtown and Convention Center. It's Ira accessible. From there, you go to Balboa Park. It's Ira accessible. It's all real, actually. Uh, San Diego Zoo, and you come to UCSD. Even this location is also Ira accessible. Um, so if you think about like all these zones and collectively becoming sort of an Ira access zone, we. Uh, we, we market it as like Ira Smart City. So we are doing this with uh, Boston uh, where Mayor Marty Walsh is going to... Um, I don't know if I can speak that publicly. Um, well, uh, I will say, uh, basically we are doing a pilot program in Boston Smart City uh, where, you know, we will enable the entire city a uh, free Ira access zone um, for all the people who are visually impaired to, to, to travel. So now you take... Boston, you take Chicago, you take you know everything else, right?
0: Right.
3: Uh, so we are basically replicating this concept of IRA Smart City, which is make your city more smart, more accessible, uh, without any infrastructure installation, and welcome you know welcome your city for everybody. So it's a kind of the concept for access for all, you know, right. access, ac- you know. Um, and one one thing I want to touch on is on the on the brand as well, right? So, you know, we always talk about what does it mean, you know, brand for you. So if you think about like IRA, I don't know how much you guys have researched the company. Uh, we, we don't call our customers customers, our clients, our patients, our blind people, our visually impaired people. Nope. We call our uh, users our explorers. Uh, there is a specific brand associated with why we choose what we chose, and there is a sense of IRA attitude and how, when you are starting to touch IRA, either it be our agents, our customers, our employees there is a sense of uh, respect, dignity, and we know how to communicate with each other. Um, uh, and we call our agents, like people who are sitting in front of com- uh, computers, they're not people who are in the call center, they are not operators, they are not workers, they are not crowdsourcers, we call them Ira agents. So there is a specific brand associated with our agents as well. So when you have an explorer, when you have an agent talking to each other, that's, that's the sort of uh, connection like you are both in synchronous and you know what needs to be done and in fact there is a ai component to it and we brand our ai chloe um the, the anybody knowing here why uh, alexa named alexa yeah so it's uh, it's yeah it's it's it's, uh, it's from star trek you can do wikipedia but chloe um is a concept from uh, tv series 24 anybody tv series 24 jack Bauer? yeah so, Jack Bower's assistant, her name is Chloe, right? right? You know, she has all the view uh, around the world. Um, so, anyways, we, na- we named her after, uh, after Chloe. Right. I don't know why I went there, but I was starting to talk about the branding, and I think I wanted to explain all those concepts.
1: Okay. How, how many employees do you have in your companies?
2: Uh,
1: 75. 75? Yeah. How
3: many do have? Got around 50 employees and 150 agents around the country.
1: OK. Um, Richard Branson has a great quote. Richard Branson says, train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so that they don't want to. As entrepreneurs, as leaders, how are you training them so they can leave, but treating them well enough so they don't want to? Share with us your entrepreneurial style to ensure that your people don't just come and go in six months, but you know, hopefully they'll be there for a long time because they believe in the culture and they believe in you.
2: So I I don't know if I'd be one of those 80% where I believe I'm giving an excellent experience, but I'm not. Um, I really focus actually on this. So my uh, greenhouses, so you have to imagine the agriculture industry is a typically terrible field to work in. You're You're outside, you're bent over, whatever. I set up my entire greenhouse to have a nightclub sound system. So that when you come in, I'm talking like acres. The whole thing is just like bumping. Really, and and <laughs> when I bring a buyer or anybody, imagine you come to work and that's the environment. You're doing a repetitive task. Um, it's relatively simple. Right. Um, and it's not typically okay, something fun up? to do. You're usually doing it in some field with a you know, a, almost like a whip cracking on you. So and, all the lettuce had to dance huh? huh? So it's 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 a fun environment. Yeah. I, I, I pride myself on bringing what I call like a Google Meets agriculture environment fist bumps high fiving that kind of a thing. Right. And then at the office, I also have a a completely different unique type look. It's open environment, um, you know, very green, very, mm. you know, everything that I can think about inspiring creativity and innovation right. just in in changing your environment around you, keeping it fun. Right. Uh, fun and innovation are the two main things that I make sure every employee has an opportunity to do and I I, I go at, I, at a length to make sure that everyone is experiencing that.
3: So Maya, how, Our office how, is not green. What's that? <laughs> yes, yeah, <it's> not green. <laughs> no, it's not green. It's, so, it's how, very how you you modern. Treat- it's very robotic. Yeah. It's very, uh, you'll see
1: TVs everywhere, PS4s everywhere, yeah. Xbox. So everywhere. what's your leadership style to, to engage people and, and, and to treat them right? So, you know, because you're investing in them, but you don't want them to leave. So show us your leadership styles as a, as a startup company, you know, an entrepreneur, CEO, how how do you uh, what do you do to well you'll people? definitely
3: find alcohol everywhere in our office. So if you come to our office, just open any refrigerator, you'll find some beer or some alcohol. Um, no, I'm serious. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I mean, my, my thing is, you know, you don't create culture. You are the culture, right? Uh, people talk about like creating the culture, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's about it's it's about people, right? So if 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 you have a sense of common uh, passion towards trying to solve one thing that itself creates know, uh, a work environment that everybody wants to come together and then do the same thing. Um, so, uh, yes, it is a very open office. I should probably make it a little bit more green. You should give me some tips on that one. But you will see TVs everywhere. You will see all the metrics everywhere. It's a very techie uh, office, I think. Uh, Zach and uh, Dean did visit right. our office.
1: Right. I want to talk about the value of creating strategic partnerships, because both of you have done that, and rather well. Uh, I have here, I wrote down, the most successful brand partnerships are the ones that strategically create something that is bigger, better, and more meaningful than each brand could create alone. Share with us your philosophy. When you look for creating a partnership with another brand, What does the ideal partnership you look for in terms of either value creation, culture, shared vision? What's very important to you to bring another partner with you to um, help you propel growth even further? That's a really
2: important thing. Um, So for me, I look at building partnerships not only in the conventional sense of with a customer, et cetera, but in in many different aspects of my life and my business. Um, So I think one of the things that I do well is I know what I don't know. And I, I look to build partnerships with uh, either individuals for ad- advisory positions um, to help me in the areas that i don 't know well um, and in other aspects, uh, what I look for is is people who will buy into the long term vision of, of what mm-hmm. we want when I was raising capital i one of my criteria was we will not sell the business ever um, and we will not issue dividends so it, I was that narrowed it down to people who are just in it to have fun uh, look for a long term play. Right. Um, and, and so I, I really, I, I stick to that with everybody. It's not about making a dollar. It's about innovating, doing something very cool and having fun mm-hmm. while we do it. Mm-hmm. And, and the money comes with it. Right.
3: Yeah, we do have a lot of partnerships, but I will, I will talk about one specifically, which is at and Um, even the Boston marathon event, uh, is kind of a combined marketing event with at and Um, so, with ATT the cool thing is, you know, you need to find that strategic, you know, hook, uh, what they would like to tell the story about, you know, uh, why they would want to tell the story about Ira, right? So, if you just look at AT&T, AT&T is all about, you know, IoT, network, pre-5G, 5G, uh, and Ira is such a good story where you have, uh, you know, the IoT, the variables, uh, and priority network, and, you know, it's a it's an impacting uh yeah, impacting people's story right so i think i think um a lot of executives at a t and t like really like to tell the story of IRA because in almost all the cases somehow there is a hook to what they are doing and how it is helping our platform grow even into the future uh even even on the business side like you know the whole geofencing concept uh you know is through partnership with a t and t so uh, so I think, like, really finding that through uh, you know common elements of how your business ties to a you know company like AT and T, which is a yep. multi-billion-dollar business, uh, I think is key.
1: Okay. At this point in time, I want to do what's called a lightning round, and it really is going to be fast answers, nothing to do with the business. I want to learn more about these two gentlemen. Okay. Okay. And it's going to be really fast, no long answers, like boom, boom, boom. Right. Okay. I'm very bad at that. Okay. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you could, really, if tomorrow you're going to check it all, the heck with the lettuce, I'm all done with the whole thing, whatever. What do you think you'd be doing? If you'd screw it all, I'm done with this lettuce thing. What do you think you'd be doing? I'd get a PhD in astrophysics.
0: Oh, wow.
3: huh. So I-, I would get a master's in neuroscience. Right? I'm just following his lead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, if you had a rollback, if you had the opportunity to roll back the film in your life, what is the one redo you would do? You know,
2: I hesitated quite a few times. Yeah. And those hesitations cost uh, opportunity and time. Hmm. And uh, I, I wouldn't second-guess myself. Great. Saman, what would you do if you had roll back the film?
3: Mm, I would increase the prices every year.
1: Yeah?
0: <laughs> <Not> really? <laughs>
1: A few more. What life experience has had a profound impact on your success?
2: When I was a sophomore in college, my family went completely bankrupt. And uh, I grew up in a, like, had everything kind of family, and then had to fend for myself. And this fight switch just flipped in me, and it's never turned off. It's great. Uh,
3: Two days ago, my financing almost... Crashed and the following day we were able to get our valuation almost twice because we had done a deal overnight. So that was pretty cool. It huh. was a moment.
1: Um, what advice would you give your children if they decided to enter the business world? Nothing. Sure, you take it.
3: I wouldn't anything. I'm sorry? I wouldn't anything. You wouldn't anything? No, because I think, I, think, uh, I think every generation is different. Every generation has their unique needs. Mm-hmm. And every generation has to adapt to what needs to be built. So I think uh, if it was my kid, so that's like three, four generations from now, uh, I don't know how yeah. it would be. Yeah.
2: To me, it's about relationships.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, it's not about a good idea or a good business. And I would encourage them and have them focus on their social skills and networking. What
1: what is the worst piece of advice someone's ever given you?
3: Don't raise too much money.
1: Don't raise too much money. Mm. Don't get your MBA.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Lastly, what nugget of wisdom? What nugget of, in, of information? Uh, knowledge would you want to share with the folks here as as a takeaway from tonight's event? From just your own background, you know. You have entrepreneurs here. You have budding entrepreneurs. What, 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 what piece of information or piece of wisdom do you want to share with folks as a takeaway?
3: You go first. I have a very short answer.
1: I'm, I'm going to give
2: one of my favorite quotes. Um, it's it's a uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's what you do in spite of it. And uh, there's when you embark on something like trying to, you know, put your whole life into it there will be a lot of fear and it's not that someone like me just didn't have it. It's that I just fought on and that's what ultimately gets you through. It's just sheer willpower.
3: Mm. I don't have a fancy quote, but I will say two words. <laughs> uh, one is resiliency. I think it's, it's a, it's probably one of the most toughest thing anybody will have to do. So there'll be ups and downs, but as long as you are not resilient, you will die. Um, and the second one is being selfless, because um, I think in the startup world, you know, for you to succeed, for you to build a company, people, you got to be grounded and be selfless and work for uh, people you are serving, both the employees and the customers, not yourself. So I think those are the two things. Right.
1: Hey Wilson, we want to thank you, uh, Saman and Pierre, for being with us. Um, you know, the thing from a marketing guy, um, you've really you've really nailed it as far as, as I mentioned earlier, a variety of times, what's so important about creating or owning a dominating category, and it appears that you've really created categories within the space you're in, and you're owning it, and uh, we just wanna wish you, you know, much, much success. I would love to come back a year from now and hear the next chapter of the story, but it's like you know, Ralph Walden Emerson said, do not go the path may lead, go and stay, there's no trail, and leave a path. So we'd love to hear how your path continues in the future, but wishing the best of luck and uh, k- keep the optimism, keep the, uh, the relentlessness, and uh, keep your focus. And uh, it seems like you're really poised for phenomenal success in, in addition to what you've achieved so far in this early time period. So we thank you and best of luck. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.